You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. If you have your Bibles, um, Acts chapter 9, and uh, we're going to continue where we uh, left off last two weeks ago. But I want to look back to go forward today. The past three weeks have been an incredible encouragement, I think, for all of us. Would you agree? What a blessing to stand in awe of God. For me, the encouragement began a number of weeks ago when we just kind of went morning, noon, and night. And you came to this property to prepare it, to beautify it, to get it ready for the October 3rd launch. So the elders, the staff, we want to say thank you. You gave so much to make last week uh, a testimony of God's grace and glory. And then last Sunday, my goodness, did you stand in awe of God? I did. I hope you did. I stood in awe of God that the, the youth were down front as they are again. To Mr. Klein, thank you. Way to go. But we had a hoopla event. God showed up. The gospel was preached. Our community was here. 9.15 last week, Colleen and Michael Sullivan walked in. And Ellen and I greeted them. They're charter members of Westwood. They drove from Denton, Texas to be with us last Sunday. And as we greeted them, they said, we wouldn't miss it in a world. And what a joy it was. And then our worship together. Afterwards, talking to some guests, one family summed it up for me. The family just said, Pastor Keith, you know, it just, I just sense God here. I sense God's presence. And then we went out to the Fall Family Fest. Was that a hoopla or what? That was a big deal. Weren't you glad Greg Argenbright was in the dunk tank first? Pastor Jason, second. And then there were some really rotten kids who like to go behind the dunk tank and hit the button. But I have a defense for the future. Next year, you're in trouble. But we had a blast, didn't we? What a joy it was to be together, to celebrate God's goodness. And then the kicker came Monday. I got a text from a guest, and he says, you know what? Sunday was just beautiful. I will be there every Sunday, and I'm planning to bring family. And so God showed up, and I think we all were encouraged. So thank you, Westwind Church. And so it reminded me, as I studied this week, of the power of encouragement in our lives. Encouragement is a gift from God, and that's what we're going to talk about. And so I hope you have your Bibles, but I want to show you a verse on the screen this morning. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Here's what Paul writes at church, and he says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are ready doing. It's a command to be encouragers, to support each other, to be cheerleaders, if you will, for each other in this journey of life. It's Hebrews 12. It's this great cloud of witnesses looking down, cheering us on in this race of faith. And so today's title, The Intentionality of Encouragement. Two weeks ago, we talked about an individual, his name is Saul, who despised Christians, hated the church and Christ, and he went around Jerusalem uh, and other places like Damascus and doing harm to Christ's work. 
but God sovereignly intervenes. He shows up. Saul of Tarsus comes to genuine faith in Christ, and boy, oh boy, he gets on mission with and for God. We pick up the story there, and so if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 9. And what we're going to see is, if anyone had reason to need encouragement, it was Saul of Tarsus. Again, hated Christians, persecuting the church, gets converted, but now we're going to look into the window of his faith journey as it gets launched and how he needed encouragement. And friends, I would expect this morning as you've come to worship, yeah, we're excited. Yeah, we're thankful for all that God has done. But life is hard. The journey of faith is difficult. And one of the gifts that we can give each other is to encourage one another daily. And so Saul of Tarsus, from this passage, is going to remind us three reasons why we all need encouragement, but especially so if you have your connect card, I encourage you to take notes. The first reason is this, because of the unique path of life. We're all on a unique path. Everybody's story is different. Saul's is very unique. So track with me. Acts chapter 9, verses 19 through 25. Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Immediately began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God. But all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests in Jerusalem? But, Paul, but Saul grew more capable, kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. After many days had passed, notice this next phrase. He just launches his public ministry. He just becomes a Christian. After many days had passed, the Jews conspired to do what? To kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. So they were watching the gates day and night, intending to kill him. And I love this. But the disciples took him by night, lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Now, friends, what's unique about that is just this. That's Saul's story. But again, just imagine the role reversal. Saul is the persecutor now being persecuted. Saul was one hating Christians. Now he's being hated as a Christian. And they want to kill him to the extent that it was so serious they had to uh, literally get rid of him from Damascus and ship him out at nighttime. Just imagine how you would feel. You come to faith in Christ. And all of a sudden, right out of the gate, there's no honeymoon period. Right out of the gate, they wanted to kill this guy. Now, again, I think for all of us here this morning, we realize our story is radically different, right? We're not Saul of Tarsus. We're not being persecuted, generally speaking, for our faith. No one's trying to kill us this morning. However, here is a common denominator. Let me show it to you on the screen. In Acts 14, we have a sobering reminder about being a Christ follower. And the longer you go in 21st century Christendom, the more pressure is being put on this faith. And so we read this. 
After they had evangelized that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, notice this next phrase, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Now again, that doesn't sound too uh, encouraging or too freeing, but you know what I love? It's honest. The word of God is always honest. We're going to pass through many troubling days in our faith journey on the way to the ultimate kingdom of heaven. That's why James chapter 1 says, verse 2, Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials, knowing the trying of your faith has a purpose. And the purpose is to grow us, to mature us, so we might be complete, lacking nothing. God wants to complete us in our trials and tribulations of life. And yes, like Saul, there will be difficult days. Ellen and I recently spent some time with some dear, dear friends these were students who came out of our youth ministry many years ago. We've known them for over 30 years. They studied for ministry as a husband and wife. They said yes to the call of vocational ministry. And so they've been serving as church planners in Cincinnati, Ohio for the past 20 years. We met with them recently. We took them out to lunch just to encourage them. And they told their story. As pastor and wife, given their life to the church for 20 years, in the past 19 months, here's what's, what's happened. The church unraveled. Because of COVID, because of politics, because of disunity, the church literally dissolved in January of this year. And we sat together hearing their story, knowing the, the trials, the tribulations, the pain, the suffering that was daunting. Uh, one of our dearest friends, she just wept there. But I'll never forget what the pastor told me. He looked right at me. He says, Keith, I'm no longer a pastor. And here's one thing I've realized. I'm not going to miss it. It broke my heart. Because these were students that we discipled. They grew. They gave. They served the church for 20 years. And the pain was so hard. He says, count me out. Now, granted, your path is different than that. Your path is different than Saul's. But the Bible encourages us when times get tough, encourage each other. The second thing, reason number two, the unique people in life. Look at verse 26. When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, so he leaves Damascus, he comes south. He tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. So think about it, folks. He's on the run from Damascus, comes about 400 miles south. He's being persecuted. They want him dead. He comes to Jerusalem. How did the disciples receive him in Jerusalem? They're skeptical. They put up a wall. They thought he was a charlatan, that he wasn't a true believer. These were individuals he thought he would get support from, help from. And what's happening? They're rejecting him. They're dissing him. So Paul's path is pretty difficult. Immediately into ministry, no honeymoon period, they want him dead. He goes south to Jerusalem thinking he's going to get encouragement and support. The disciples diss him. One of the things we have in the Bible is we have a clear record of the apostle Paul's life. And by the way, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek name because he did ministry to the Gentile world. 
But we have quite a narrative of Paul's life, and we can say this similarly. There were people in Paul's life who absolutely encouraged him, and there were people on the other side who absolutely discouraged him. There's two types of people typically in your life today. People who bring life, and people who take it from you. Let me show you a picture from Paul's final letter. It's 2 Timothy chapter 4, or chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul writes 2 Timothy from a prison cell. You talk about his path. He now is preparing for martyrdom. In chapter 4, he says, my life is being poured out. Nero is emperor. He hates Christians. So Paul knows martyrdom is sure. Here's what he writes, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Try to feel what he's feeling. He says this, you know, all those in Asia have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. So think about it. Who are in Asia? These are the churches he planted in Asia Minor. They turned away from him. Why? The persecution was hard. Nero despised Christians, and Christianity was being ravaged under Nero. So the church says, hey, just, 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 just distance yourself from uh, Saul, from Paul. But notice what happens here. May the Lord grant mercy to who? The household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Isn't it interesting, in his final epistle, Saul of Tarsus preparing for martyrdom, people turning away, abandoning, he brings up one name. And the fellow's name is Onesiphorus. Can you say that? Onesiphorus. That's a weird name. I don't think I know anybody with that name. But notice the beautiful phrase, because he often refreshed me. This is one of the beautiful words in the ancient language that simply means to cool and refresh by breathing. Think about the anxiety the Apostle Paul might have been experiencing. And then Onesiphorus comes alongside and he brings peace and support. Think about the distress and then the relief. Think about the saddened heart Saul has. And there's Onesiphorus coming alongside to cheer up, to be a breath of fresh air. Ellen and I like to scuba dive. Some of you guys know that. Two years ago, we were in Cabo, and it's where the Pacific meets the Sea of Cortez. And we hadn't dove in a while, and so what we had to do was a refresher course. And so we're together, master diver, and we're down about 25, 30 feet. And you go through various exercises in a refresher course. It's a three to four hour thing. You get past, and you move on, and you go diving. Well, I'm down with the master diver, and one of the things you have to do is you have to take the respirator out and let it go into the ocean. And you're looking at the master diver, he's looking at you, and he wants you to be calm, because you have no oxygen. And so then, at the right time, he'll signal you to take the respirator and put it back in. So there we are, down at the bottom of the ocean, we're doing this refresher course, my respirator's out, he signals me, to be refreshed. I go to get my hose, and guess what? I couldn't find it. I try again. I couldn't find it. I start to panic. I did something you'd never want to do in the ocean underwater. I breathed in salt water, and guess what happened? I started to convulse. I'm looking at the master diver. He's looking at me. Guess what he did? He took his respirator, and he gave it to me. I'm panicking, 
And we have sign language underground. He looks at me like this. And I'm like not feeling like this at all. <laughs> For some reason, I'm like, I'm getting there. And then the other one was, don't panic, relax. Here's the point. Folks, when we refresh each other, like Onesiphorus did Saul of Tarsus, who had a difficult path, who had difficult people, it's like giving them a breath of fresh air when they're suffocating, when they feel asphyxiated. It's coming alongside someone who has tremendous need and lifting them up. And so we have the path, which is a problem, the people, which is a problem. How about the third thing? The unique pain in life. Look at verses 28 and 29. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Again, try to put it into context what's going on here. From day one, Saul of Tarsus, Paul the Apostle, death threats, persecution, rejected in Jerusalem. Now he gets some freedom, he starts preaching, and guess what? The death threats, the uh, attacks continued. And so what happens? They get Paul out of Dodge. He leaves Jerusalem, he goes to a place called Caesarea Maritime on the coast, and then they ship him off to Tarsus, which is where? That's where Saul grew up. And so if you put it into perspective, folks, his path was difficult. The people were difficult. The pain was difficult. I believe this with all my heart when I read the narrative of Saul in the book of Acts and in his epistles. Psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, there were times where he was absolutely overwhelmed. And he needed air support. He needed to be refreshed by someone else. And so guess who comes along in Acts chapter 9? I call it Barnabas to the rescue. Take a look at your Bibles. Acts 9.27 is a key verse in chapter 9. Barnabas, when people were rejecting him, when he's getting persecuted, when there's death threats, Barnabas, however, took him, brought him to the apostles, explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and how he had talked to them and how in Damascus he had spoken in the name of Jesus. Friends, there's no more powerful picture than an encourager than this passage. You're hated, you're being persecuted, there's death threats, you're being rejected, you're being displaced, shipped off to different places. Who comes along? His name is Barnabas. Barnabas is really the patron saint of encouragement. If you want to learn how to be an encourager according to scripture, study the life of Barnabas. Do you realize this? that the early church gave him a nickname? His name is Joseph in Acts 4. We'll look at that. But it became Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. How many of you grew up like me with nicknames? You just don't want to admit it again. All right. How many of you grew up with me like the nicknames? No? Okay. All right, so guess what some of mine were. I had glasses about an inch thick, Okay. Shot glasses, Barney Google with the goo goo googly eyes. They used to sing that song. That's fighting language on the street, I'm telling you. Okay? Poindexter, remember Poindexter? The big old glasses. Nicknames mean something. And we had nicknames for everybody. And typically they were derogatory. 
You start calling me shot glasses, poindexters, Barney Googles, those are fighting words, let's go. Guess what Barnabas' nickname was? Folks, it was endearing. It was one of the most beautiful names given to someone in the ancient world. Barnabas from Joseph means son of encouragement. If you want to know what Barnabas stands for, he stands for encouragement. He stands for refreshment. He stands for blessing others who have needs. Every portrait in the book of Acts demonstrates that that's true. So this morning, we're going to look at three portraits of Barnabas. We're going to go through it kind of big picture and hopefully inspire each one of us for encouragement. So let's take a look. Here's the blessing. The blessing, the life of Barnabas should inspire us to become intentional encouragers. Intentional encouragers. And by the way, the Greek word for encourager is parakaleo. It's a compound word. Parakaleo. Kaleo called para alongside. An encourager is someone who comes alongside, refreshes someone in need. Saul is being dissed. He's being persecuted. He's being displaced and hated Barnabas comes alongside. You know what's neat about this word parakaleo? It's the same word for the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is known as the parakalete. He comes alongside. He supports. He blesses. He encourages. He teaches. He counsels. He advises. And what a gift to be like Barnabas, but ultimately like the Spirit of God. So, Let's move to three intentional, uh, encouraging things about Barnabas. Number one, an encourager is generous with the resources. If you have your Bibles and you're comfortable flipping back, I'd love for you to flip back to Acts chapter 4, 36 through 37. Again, it's on the screen. But here's a portrait of Barnabas. Joseph, a Levite of Cypriot by birth, the one of the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. The first portrait we have of Joseph who becomes son of encouragement is him being generous. And folks, if you've been around uh, Westwind any period of time, you know this, we have a motif at Westwind. One of our hallmarks here is to be generous how? With our time, our treasure, our talent, and our touch. Now certainly what Barnabas did was he demonstrated he was generous with his treasure. He sells his resources, gives it to the apostles, and they go bless others in Jesus' name. But you'll see later throughout the book of Acts, he's generous holistically. He gave of his time, his treasure, his talent, and touch. And boy, we should follow in like manner to encourage others. And so let's go back a little bit to October 3rd, our community launch. Again, last week, I saw this demonstration of generosity, folks, and it was beautiful. Do you realize our children's ministry needed 18 servants to pull off children's ministry last week? What a blessing that they showed up and our kids were cared for. We had 10 guests from the community in our children's ministry, and they were cared for. Ministry took place exceptional. Brett and his team always dialed in on Sunday morning. Same deal, seven, eight, nine people to pull off worship. We have a hospitality ministry that takes a mini army. People parking and greeting and doing coffee, passing out uh, connect cards, welcoming. And then, 
I just loved going out to the lawn and seeing the dozens upon dozens of servants giving of their time, their treasure, their talent, and their touch for four hours. Friends, it was a delight to see you in action. You know what Barnabas demonstrates? He follows the basic principle that comes from Jesus, and it's recorded in Acts 20, 35. It is more blessed to do what? To give than to receive. That's a wonderful reality. It's more blessed, more God-honoring. It's more fruitful. Do you realize there is joy in giving? When you give of your time, treasure, talent, and touch, you get to bless others. You're also blessed in the giving. And we saw that last week, and we constantly see it here at Westwood, and we're so thankful. So I want to give you a challenge. It comes from Hebrews 3.13. Check it out on the screen. Notice what the writer to Hebrews says. But encourage each other how often? Okay, someone said it down front. Let's do that again. But encourage each other how often? Yes. That's a beautiful directive, isn't it? Which is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Do you realize when you get discouraged, sin's door is wide open? You can do things you will ultimately regret when discouragement's winning the day. But when there's encouragement, when you're being built up and refreshed, yeah, the path is hard. Yeah, some people are stinkers. Yeah, there's problems in life. But guess what? There's encouragement from the body of Christ. And we do it daily. So can I give you a challenge? Who's up for a challenge? I call it the eight-day challenge. Crystal's nodding her head. Here's what I'd like to suggest. Beginning today through next Sunday, identify one way you can encourage someone in this journey of faith. Just one encouragement, folks. It could be a note, a phone call. It could be a gift. It could be a walk in a park. It could be praying for them and just call them and say, hey, I just prayed for you. I've been thinking about you. There's so many ways to refresh others in Jesus' name. Being generous with our time, treasure, talent, and touch. I hope you take that challenge. Secondly, an encourager sees beyond the mess. And folks, this is a big one in Barnabas's life. Why? Because life is messy, I think we would agree. Think of Saul of Tarsus. Why did the Jerusalem believers reject him? They thought he was a charlatan because he ravaged the church. And yet, who stands in the gap for him? Who saw beyond the mess of Saul of Tarsus, a hater, a persecutor of the church? Barnabas did. What would Saul's life have been without the Barnabas? Folks, we all need Barnabases in our life. We absolutely do. So let's look at the passage. I'm going to give you another snapshot. This is a few years later. It's Acts chapter 15. Uh, Saul and Barnabas were doing mission work together. They're thinking about the second missionary journey. Look what, what happens, Acts 15. After some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers in every town where we have preached the message of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark, but Paul did not think it appropriate to take along this man who had, notice the phrase, deserted them on the first missionary journey in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. There was such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. And notice what happens. Notice who stands in the gap. Notice who looks beyond the mess. And Barnabas took Mark with him 
and sailed off to Cyprus. Then Paul chose Silas, departed. After being commended to the grace of the Lord by the brothers, he traveled through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the church. Friends, think about the conversation potentially that Paul and Barnabas had. The Bible says he had a sharp disagreement with Paul. And I can kind of get a glimpse of what that might have looked like. Could you imagine Barnabas saying, Saul, are you so forgetful that there was a time in your faith journey when you went to Jerusalem to get air support? When people doubted your genuine faith in Christ and they put up a wall and they rejected you. Saul, do you remember who stood in the gap for you? Do you remember who believed that we worship a God of second chances? So you're telling me right now, what I did to you, you do not want to do to John Mark. And they had a sharp disagreement. And guess what happened? They parted company. Now, folks, what's beautiful about the reality of God being a God of second chances, that is the narrative of Scripture. Would you agree? Because we all fail and fall short of the glory of God. Peter denies Jesus three times. Get back in the game. Feed my sheep. That is the narrative of Scripture. One failure doesn't mean ultimate failure. Barnabas was not looking in the rearview mirror. He was believing God for greater things, for better things for John Mark. And guess what happened? He took a risk, and the dividends paid off. Let me show it to you. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, again, going back to Timothy, Paul's final epistle, he's going to be martyred under Nero. He is discouraged, trust me. It's a very difficult, emotional pastoral letter. He says this. He says, Timothy... Bring Mark with you, notice the next phrase, for he is useful to me in ministry. You know what happened to John Mark? Yeah, he failed, but he got back up and he got back into the game. Very much analogous to Peter. Denying the Lord three times, Jesus cooks him a fish fry. Get back in the game, feed my sheep. Do you know who John Mark is in history? He's the one who wrote the gospel of Mark. This is the young man who failed, yes, but got mentored by Barnabas. Paul says he's useful for the ministry. And here's what scholars say. He's the first one to write the first gospel that Luke and Matthew used to write their gospels. The investment by Barnabas was enormous, folks. And so when you and I look beyond the mess when we believe in people who are struggling. Yes, they have a past, but they look beyond the past to the future of what great things God can do. That's the heart of an encourager. Now, finally, intentionality number three, an encourager empowers others for leadership. Again, if you have your Bibles, look to Acts 13, one through three. I want to show you something. In the ancient world, it's very significant to look at the orders of people's names. What does the order do? It shows you who's in charge, who's the boss, and who has prestige in leading the mission. What you're going to see in Acts is a reversal. Initially, the team was Barnabas and Saul, and yet there was a reversal. So let's take a look at it. In Acts 13, 1 through 3, in the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, notice, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work 
I have called them to. Then after they had fasted, prayed, laid hands on them, they were sent off. When these two men were called into missions and they took the gospel to the ends of the earth, Rome for sure, maybe Spain, the team started out, Barnabas and Saul. But there was a change, and the change was pretty dramatic as ministry went on, as Saul matured, as Paul started to be used greatly by God. Let me show it to you. In Acts 15, 22, we read, and this was a very important decision because there was doctrinal issues to be settled. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with who? With Paul and Barnabas. Now, friends, it might look incidental in Scripture. It's not incidental at all. There's a role reversal. And think about the humility of Barnabas right now. Once he is the leader, he's called out, he's setting the pace, he's quote-unquote in charge. Now there's a role reversal, and it is Saul and Barnabas. That takes great humility to take the second chair, to let someone else lead when you were once leading. In our day and age, that's not easy. Why? We like to climb the corporate ladder. We like titles and prestige. We like to build a name for ourselves. You know what Barnabas wanted to do with his life and ministry? Build a name for others in Jesus' name. He decreased and others increased. That's the beautiful message that came from John the Baptist. And friends, that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Think it through. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be the one who does what? Who serves. Who takes up the towel and wash basin and blesses others. It's not about titles. It's not about prestige. It's not about Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas didn't give a rip about that. What he cared about was the gospel advancing. What he cared about was empowering leaders for ministry. Leaders who would take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And of course, that's what happened under Saul, who became Paul to the Greek world. As we prepare for communion, I'd like to ask you to please take out this little cup. And I want you to think with me just for a moment about our Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about three things an encourager does today. And the beautiful thing, folks, whenever we do biographical sketches of individual in Scripture, it always points back to our Savior. It is remarkable how absolutely true these attributes, these intentional realities are true of Jesus. The question we must ask this morning as we prepare to celebrate communion, how generous was Jesus? Well, Jesus was absolutely generous. He says, no man takes my life, I freely give it on my own behalf. In other words, he came, he was born to die. He came to offer his life a living sacrifice. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave, he was generous. God gave his best. And when you think about communion, you have to think about generosity. Jesus left his home in heaven. It's called the incarnation. He became the God-man. He served, he ministered, he blessed, but he lived generous. With his time, his talent, his touch, he gave his life away. And so as we think about communion this morning, think about the generosity of Jesus that Barnabas emulated. Secondly, would you agree with me? Jesus looks beyond our mess. I love Jesus for that. My life's been pretty messy. 
And I would expect behind closed doors, your life is pretty messy too. He looks beyond the mess. He's not always looking in the rear view mirror of what we were, but rather what we can become in Christ. That's why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. It is a new day. Jesus said it's being born again. It's having a fresh start. What a gift that is, folks. Thank God this morning as we celebrate communion. He looks beyond our mess. I'm going through the book of Isaiah right now, and it was really interesting, the first five chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He was pretty bold, but he always pointed the finger at someone. Prophetic, calling out this sin, Israel, different nations, different uh, sins that they committed. But in chapter 6, what happens is he saw a picture of God. And then he saw his own mess. And he says, woe is me. I'm unclean. I'm undone. And I need Jesus' blood. I need his forgiveness with my mess. And it was a transformation for Isaiah the prophet. We need that kind of transformation, folks. To not look out and see all the mess out there. But let God look at the mess in here and deal with it through Jesus Christ. And then the final thing, empowerment. It's one of the great gifts of Christianity. Jesus chooses 12 to be with him. He equips them, he disciples them, and then he empowers them for ministry. That should be all our narrative this morning. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, he's ascending into heaven. You will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That's empowerment. Pastors, Pastor Jason, myself, elders, we're called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's empowerment, giving it away. And so as we celebrate communion, please open your container and there's a piece of bread. And then there's the cup. These are basic elements that come from the ancient world and they're basic today. It's bread and juice. But boy, they're profound in their meaning. These are elements of generosity. Jesus gave his best. He gave his life. These are elements that said God looks beyond your mess and sees potential when you put your faith and trust in Christ. You could be made new, born again, fresh start, start, slate wiped clean. And that he wants to use you. He wants to give you purpose and meaning. And so on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he lifted it towards heaven. He gave thanks to his father. Why did he give thanks? That he could offer his life a ransom for you and me, payment for sin. Let's eat together. On that same night, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant shed in my blood. It's a cup of forgiveness. Let's drink together. Stand with me, please. Let's pray and then we'll worship and close out. Father, we thank you this morning for the generosity of our Savior. And whether it's Barnabas or others who emulate that generosity, we know the source is you. Thank you for giving your best, Jesus Christ, your son. We thank you, Father, for grace. 
because grace looks beyond the mess. I pray, Father, you'd help us to see our mess so we could see your grace more and more and we would run to it. And Father, what a privilege to be on mission with you, to be empowered for ministry, that we would decrease and Christ would increase. May it be so, Father, among your people at Westwood. And so we celebrate today the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We worship you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.